You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Our speaker today is Natalia Savielieva, who is a sociologist who received her uh, candidate or PhD in social sciences from the Institute of Sociology of the Russian Academy of Sciences in 2016. And uh, Natalia has been a Wisconsin Russia Project postdoctoral fellow. She's also had a uh, one year visiting researcher position at Indiana University last year. Currently, she's a researcher with the Public Sociology Laboratory. In, uh, at the Center for Independent Social Research in St. Petersburg, and she'll be starting a position at a uh, think tank in Washington in January called the Center for European Policy Analysis in Washington, D.C. And Natalia's research focuses on a range of themes such as uh, time and labor and the organization of work. Uh, she studied protest movements and mobilization in Russia and Ukraine, and also war and conflicts in post-Soviet space. And that is the subject of her lecture today, uh, the title of which is Why Fight? Motivations of the Anti-Kiev Militants in the Donbass War. Okay, thank you very much for the introduction and thank you for having me today. Uh, for me, it's also the first presentation in the last one year and a half, which I give to uh, real people actually in the real room. Uh, not in my room and not to the screen of my laptop. So today I will talk about Donbass conflict and my perspective will be anti-Kiev side of this conflict, so the Russian fighters. And I will try to, I will try to uh, answer the question why people join the fight, why people join the war, why at some point they decide that to take arms and to travel to another country or maybe to stay in their own territory and to be involved in the real fight is more important than something else. How they overcome fear, what is motivating them. So that's my main focus today. And I will say a couple of words about the conflict itself just to give you a context. So uh, the conflict started in spring 2014 and now it takes place in the eastern regions of Ukraine, so in Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast. Uh, the National Guard's region, so those territories are occupied by anti-Kiev forces. And those regions, so the tradition during Soviet Union you know, was industrial regions. Um, I would say when it's like so, they state industrial, it's coal mining, and Donetsk was pretty well-developed city before the war. I mean, even now when I travel there. I was surprised that it looked a little bit like Moscow <laughs> sometimes. So in those cities, they're pretty far from the center of Ukraine, from Kiev, uh, and they bordered, uh, so those two regions, they bordered with Russia. So Kiev is Russia, and Kiev is Rostov and Don, from where you can travel to those regions. So, and before I will start, uh, I will go into this question why people join anti-Kiev um, groups. I want to start with like a general description of the situation because that's actually very important to understand both motivations of people. And yeah, 
So what is interesting here that uh, this war is a mobilization, anti-Kiev mobilization, this, the pretext and the history which preceded this mobilization was, uh, it started in Kiev in 2013 with um, Euromaidan rallies when people uh, in the squares to um, voice their decision uh, to join European Union. And they wanted that President Yanukovych to sign um, an agreement with the European Union. And there was very, there was just huge and mass rallies. I don't know, maybe some of you followed that. And they started at, uh, early, at early uh, autumn in 2013. Then a lot of people came uh, to the main square, to Maidan Square in Kyiv. And there was a camp there. And um, the level of violence was not, like, so there were some clashes from time to time. But uh, in, uh, at the beginning of the 2014, um, the huge clashes between Maidan supporters and police uh, started. And uh, that was a sort of turning point for the, this, the opposite movement. Uh, which is called themselves anti-Maidan movement. So at the beginning, uh, there was just people who were mostly paid by party of region, so that's the president, the ex-president of Ukraine party, to travel to uh, Maidan and just to fight with those people. Anyway, so that was not real, I would say, popular movement at the beginning. But then, when those clashes in Kyiv started and when the people in the square started um, fighting with the police, when uh, Ukrainian nationalists they also became much more visible because I mean they were <laughs> trained <laughs> for a fight. So at that point, anti-Maidan, uh, which took place mostly in western regions of Ukraine, so in Donbas it was like the strongest movement I would say, but there was also Kharkov and Odessa, where more and more people just started participating in anti-Maidan rallies, and those people would say like, no, we don't want Europe. We don't want what Maidan want. We, against those people, we want our president and we want friendship with Russia. So we don't want any friendship with Europe. Uh, Europe is underdeveloped, whatever, territory. But Russia is great, so we want to be with Russia. And that was like a sort of major contradiction between those movements because they just wanted the completely uh, opposite things. So, and then after the beginning of 2014, the events, they just started developing very, very fast. So there was clashes um, in Kyiv. Um, so you can see some pictures that just look really uh, horrible. There were shootings, a lot of people were killed, and still, I mean, there is still, investigation is still like, continuing. It's not clear who killed those people, but a lot of people also, they just, uh, died during those fights, and some like m m European police and Berkut, that's a special forces, they were attacked by uh, protesters. So they also have some I mean, injuries and losses. And that's important that those Berkut guys, they were from the mass, many of them were from the mass. So then, uh, the very important, uh, then um, uh, Yanukovych left. He escaped to Russia, and he stopped being a president of Ukraine, which was also not very uh, optimistic development for Eastern regions, because traditionally Eastern regions supported more pro-Russian uh, political forces in Ukraine. So Yanukovych was like a Donetsk and Lugansk 
president. Right? Uh, then uh, uh, there was a fire, then, then Crimea happened. So in March, uh, there was a referendum first, uh, fast and huge protest uh, in Crimea, and Crimea. Uh, there was a referendum there, Crimea voted for joint for independence, and then like in two days, uh, Putin signed the, um, the document which made the Crimea the part of Russia. So it was also, also very fast, but uh, why it is important in our story that this Crimea uh, thing that gave a lot of hope to those people who were already protesting in the eastern regions, because they were, they were so you can see this photo, I guess it's from the Nets, and it's written here, first Crimea, then Donbass. So they hope, like, okay, those crazy people somewhere in Kiev, they get rid of our, they got rid of our president, they just want to prohibit to speak Russian on our territory, and they want to live with Europe. Okay, we don't want that. So please, maybe we can join Russia, too. <laughs> or maybe we can at least be independent. And, so in Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast, they also organized uh, their own referendum um, later. And a, a lot of people who participated, I mean, at least based on official data, a lot of people who participated in this referendum, they also voted for independence for those territories. Then, so in March, uh, the new president uh, of Ukraine, Piotr Poroshenko, he announced an uh, anti-terroristic operation, which basically meant that those anti-Maidan people, who at that moment they took all the administra administrative buildings, there was a huge rallies, they took over police buildings, um, they built block posts. So those people were officially um, called uh, terrorists. That was an important thing uh, too. But in April, there were not that much uh, clashes between two sides, so that was just the announcement then. Then there was another important event. There was the fire in the House of Union in Odessa, and that was the heaven after a football match. Uh, after, the, after that, Maidan and anti-Maidan supporters, they have fights on Odessa streets. And after that, they all moved to Klipovopolia. There was and people who supported anti-Maidan, they just uh, locked themselves somehow in this house of unions, and there was a huge fire, for, more than 40 people died there. And that was a very important event, because first there was just a horrible picture, as always, uh, and there was a lot of people died, but there was also a lot of discussion. So some people who supported anti-Maidan, they was horrified by those deaths, and for them, that it was also the result of what the result of Maidan, right? So they blamed Maidan, they blamed new Ukrainian power. And in this case too, that was like not clear exactly what happened. So why those people were locked there? Why so just the whole situation was not really so it was mysterious a little bit. And uh, for other side of for other side of this conflict, for Maidan people, so uh, many, many of people who supported Maidan, and, and that, at that moment, the contradiction was really like strong. So uh, they um, accused uh, anti-Maidan people in being, like I don't know, of being somebody who don't deserve to leave. And there was like a huge discussions about that, how they should die. 
And there was a lot, so that was just very bad discussion, <laughs> very bad public discussion about who should die and why. Yeah, and basically after that, so in May, at uh, the beginning of May, the real clashes in the Donbass region started. So Ukrainian army was there. There was also another event, which uh, Strelkov traveled. This is a guy. It's not clear if he was affiliated with um, Phase B at that moment or not. So he traveled and occupied one of the Donbass region cities. And so there was Slavyansk, so there was fight in Slavyansk, there was fight in airport, the next airport, then uh, there was bombing of Luhansk, so at that moment it's just the real war started. And uh, my question is, there were a lot of discussions, I mean, and still it's not clear now what had happened then, back then. What is special about this conflict is that it's really long lasting, I mean, it's one of the longest Whereas on the post-Soviet space. The second, and um, actually the attempt to make a peace, uh, the peaceful agreement and somehow to stop this, this conflict, uh, this attempt was made already in autumn 2014. There was the time of the first Minsk agreement um, meeting. Uh, but still, I mean, this is seven years past since that. And there is no peace there, and in this spring we were observing new wave of escalations and, and this territory. So somehow this conflict is still ongoing, and there was a lot of discussions uh, at the beginning and now. Uh, so who participated in this conflict? Why all that happened? Who were those people who joined the fight on the side of anti-key forces? So there was one very strong opinion which said, "Well, that's just Russia." There was Russian soldiers and some crazy Russian nationalists who traveled there, who took arms, and they just, they did all that. No local people there. And that was also like a sort of official position sometimes of Kiev. Uh, the other position was, which was supported by local people mostly, they said, no, 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 and by Russia, of course, too. No, 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 no Russian army, just only local people who want to defend themselves, and we had civil war here. So that was the debate, and the truth is, as always, somewhere in between. So it's pretty clear that now this territory, I mean, that uh, anti-key forces, they were backed by Russia, and now the territory is controlled by Russia very much. So now it's pro-Russian territory, not only <laughs> because people like Russia, but because Russian <laughs> state officials, not official state officials, occupy a lot of positions there. But the question is, like, at the beginning, what was that? And actually, to understand the answer to this question, I guess, will help to both understand the dynamics and the evolution of this conflict, and also probably at some point when, when there will be an opportunity for that to discern the, the participants of this conflict and maybe bring the peace to this territory. So, uh, uh, in my presentation, I will use the data which was collected by me and my colleagues from Public Sociology Laboratory during five trips to the Donbass region. So I was traveling, like, I spent like two months in general, I guess, in 2016, 17 in the Donetsk and Lugansk region, talking with people that was not only combatants, there was also new Republican <coughs> officials, there was also ordinary people who stayed there, there was also activists who took active part in Maidan and uh, in anti-Maidan movement. And some interviews were conducted in Moscow, mostly in 
Union of Donbass Volunteers. This is an organization who support um, who support, let's say, the veterans of this war, Russian veterans. But actually, they don't. So that's not <laughs> the only thing they do. They actually help people to travel side of fight and help them to find medical support in Russia. And some interviews were taken also in St. Petersburg, so that was mostly interview with members of Russian nationalist uh, movement. Uh, and in the following, I just, I just try, I just will start with some description of who those people were, and I will introduce you sort of classification I made with my colleagues Svetlana Yurpilova, just to make some distinction within <laughs> this uh, mass of people. So I will start with description of different social trajectories which uh, brought people to join this fight, and uh, with, uh, with the description of how exactly they were mobilized, what exactly happened in 2013 and 2014, which made them to join the fight. And then I will, uh, I will, f I will move to, uh, to the question of how they made sense of this conflict, so how exactly they saw the war, how exactly they interpreted what was going on in 2014, 15, 16, back then, which also made a huge impact in their participation. So, uh, among all the interviews we collected, and that's not unfortunately a representative um, sample, um, but it's very difficult to make a representative sample now because nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows um, anything about like the whole, uh, just uh, how this like the whole um, combatant, um, I don't know, mass group, right? So the majority, the most of interviews uh, were, uh, were conducted in Donbass with Donbass citizens, so that's just the half of the interviews. I will uh, be talking about today. Some interviews were conducted with Russian citizens, and there were a few interviews were conducted with people who traveled to Donbass from other regions of Ukraine. So that was uh, some eastern regions, like Kharkov or Odessa, but, but that was also some western regions, and Kiev. So like in these non-Donbass regions, we have like people from one person from <laughs> one uh, region, I guess. And uh, so those people who joined armed groups from Donbass, Russia, or non-Donbass regions, uh, we can divide them, I mean, we divided them, they divided them into five groups, basing on their trajectory of mobilization and on their like, social characteristics, who they are. So those local people who were in Donbass, uh, who was living in Donbass uh, at the moment of the start of the fight, uh, I, I, I divided it into two groups, that's evolving localist and disrupted outcasts. So the, the first group is like more well-off citizens, the second is less privileged. The people from Russia, uh, they um, made the majority of this category of adventurous ideologists and the majority of the people whom I called uh, nationalist terrorists and none of us people, so now they're all in this category of inspired similarities. And now I will speak in details about like those five groups. Uh, no, first I want to show you just different, uh, just um, description of the whole sample. So the most of those people, and this is actually looks like true. I mean, if we look at the all combatants who took part, we don't know a lot about like the whole, um, the whole 
uh, all combatants, but we know that the most of them, and this is pretty interesting, so they were over 35 years old, and in our sample, you can see the same. And what is interesting in our sample is that many people actually, um, uh, they have high education, so they're educated, and many of them actually wasn't employed, so they were working at the time of the beginning of the conflict, and a lot of them actually, they were like not some kind of poor thugs, but they were like really well of people. Um, but the majority of them were, were male, so there were only like, few females in our sample. So, Donbass, who joined um, the war and why from uh, Donbass region? So first, there was uh, uh, well-off Donbass citizens. Usually they were educated, so usually it was people with high education or people with at least vacation, uh, second, uh, vocational education, vocational secondary education, but anyway, I mean, uh, and before the war they had stable jobs, usually they had families, and they had stable incomes. And what is interesting about that group, that they joined, um, not the fight, but anti-Maidan movement, uh, like during the first stages, of, so much, uh, earlier than the fight started, so they joined uh, joined uh, anti Maidan movement in spring, in early spring 2014, uh, and they were uh, actively participated first in rallies, then in occupation of uh, buildings, administrative buildings, then they start uh, patrolling the streets, uh, then they build a block posts. So they were a sort of active participant of the movement. Uh, before the war uh, events, the war clash, uh, before the violent clashes started. So, and for them, this like movement from participation in the spreader activities to, particip to participation in war activities was a sort of like natural move. I mean, at some point, they just found themselves in armed groups because they were in those armed groups with those people, the same people with whom they participated in rallies, uh, uh, patrolling the streets, whatever. So they joined armed groups before armed groups became armed groups, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And uh, for them, if uh, like we try to describe the process of their mobilization, that was very much about fear and resentment. So uh, how they saw the events which happened in Ukraine. So for them, what happened there in Kiev was a lot of violence, uh, nationalists, Ukrainian nationalists who hate Russians, uh, who want them to stop speaking Russian language, uh, who are going to come and kill them, actually, and they don't have Yanukovych anymore, who was their president, because he just left. I mean, many of them hated Yanukovych, but they just felt that this is our guy, and he will protect us, and he is representing our, whatever, our position, our voice. So, no Yanukovych. Uh, and they felt more and more alienated from this new Ukrainian state and more and more frightened. So all those events, like the fire in the House of Union, the clashes in Kiev, uh, then uh, um, other events which happened, I mean, there was also a lot of rumors that trains of friendship is traveling to Donbass and nationalists are coming to Kiev. 
the Basque people. So that just makes them more and more feared, more and more estranged, and more and more disappointed by the situation. So they just, at some point, they just less and less saw themselves as citizens of Ukraine because nobody represented them anymore. Because they never agreed with the uh, Maidan claims, because they just never agreed with Maidan in general. Um, the second, and what is important about them, so they didn't have any predispositions to join uh, violent events, and they didn't have any political experience before. Some of them were uh, had a mandatory uh, army service, but they never participated in real fights. So they just ordinary citizens, I would say. The other group, which is pretty small, uh, there was also Donbass citizens, but there was unprivileged citizens. So they were much more poor. Uh, they were usually uh, uneducated. They were, so they was working in construction. Uh, and they mobilized much later than this first category of people. So basically, they were observing these anti-Maidan rallies, but they never took part in that because they just, I don't care what's going on there. It's just, that's not my business. That's okay. And here's a quotation with, uh, from the interview with one of the guys, and he's describing the city. So he was living in Slavinsk. And Slavinsk was occupied by Strelkov and his like, 50 armed people uh, at the end of March. And this is the situation is the beginning of May. So he's living in the city, occupied by some armed guys who came from Russia <laughs> for two months now. And he's like, yeah, you know, I was okay. I mean, those people, they were okay. They just was walking around. They was like, nice. I didn't care. I just, I had my family. I had to feed my family. My daughter was born. I was working. Everything was like, okay. <laughs> I didn't care. Yeah, something was going on in Kiev, but in Kiev, crazy people leave. What do you want? Something was going on in Donetsk, but that's only people who have nothing to do in their life participating. Uh, all those protests and occupied buildings. So I just lived my life. And he, uh, as well as other outcasts, he just joined armed groups um, at the moment when, like, literally, uh, literally, he was under attack. So literally, the bomb falls like 10 meters from you. And just, oh my god, yes, Marsta, <laughs> I have to join. And they joined also because they didn't have uh, any other options, right? So. The fight was around them, the war was around them. Uh, they didn't have any economic capital uh, to move, uh, to leave the territory. And the thing is, there was also so this like, the unprivileged position, they didn't give them this opportunity to think that like, oh yeah, I can build my life somewhere else. It's just, yeah, I live here, I don't want to leave. Okay, armed groups, I go there. I am a man, I will defend my motherland, whatever. So they joined, really, they joined armed groups because they lost their jobs, because when the war the city started, of course, uh, all those construction sites were closed, and because they just didn't have other uh, options, I guess. So in their, in their case, the fear played an important role, but there was like literally a fear. So this bomb just fell 10 meters from you. Tomorrow, probably, it will fall down on your head, so th that sort of fear. <laughs> so the second category is the, the pretty big one. Uh, this is the people who traveled to join armed groups specifically from Russia. 
And here we see two types of people. So first type of people, we call them inspired ideologues, ideologists. So uh, those, uh, this is a very interesting category of people. So those people are very well educated usually. So they all have high education. Their parents, uh, so we can say that their parents uh, come from Soviet intelligentsia. So those people, they were working professors, uh, university professors, musicians, uh, poets, some people who uh, got like leading chief positions in uh, Soviet uh, in Soviet um, enterprises. So those people they were pretty privileged. They had high education. They had a lot of interest in art, philosophy, and all that stuff. Um, and some of them had very successful professional careers. Some of them were didn't, so they were like marginalized, but they were marginalized like Bahim was marginalized. So they were just hanging out with their friends, reading uh, Hegel, I don't know, I was thinking about how the world should be. And those people, they had, uh, they had a lot of political experience in their life before war. So many of them were participating in national national Bolshevik party. This is one of um, pretty radical oppositionist party in Russia. I mean, it's not it does not exist anymore. But uh, back in two thousands, they made a lot of street actions and they also occupied buildings in Moscow. And that was I mean that was <laughs> uh, so there was both. Uh, there was both politics, uh, uh, there was like both politics but also sort of art. So there was really a little bit high grow stuff. But all those people, at some point, they were disappointed with their lives because they tried to change political regime and life in Russia. It didn't work because actually Putin came in the 2000s and at that moment uh, all active opposition uh, was repressed. So, and they were, so one of them said that, you know, I was just depressed uh, the years before the war because I was like, nothing is going on. Like, I would love to have a better life. I would love to live according to my principles, but I can't because there is no opportunity for that. And then war started. And they were pretty excited about that because for them it was a sort of a chance to finally leave according to their according to their values to finally do what they was going to do in the thousands uh, what they was going to do later to finally I don't know to finally be heroes the heroes of their own like imaginary story of their lives right uh, and there were also some of those people there were also uh, all of them who were pretty disappointed disappointed about the dissolution of Soviet Union. So they had different views, but all of them experienced Soviet, uh, the dissolution of Soviet Union as a sort of personal tragedy because for them there was the destruction of the world, which really was based on something like real, of on some ideas worth living living for, um, and. So in their in, in their situation, this resentment it plays it played a like important role in their mobilization. The second group of people who came from Russia uh, is completely different from those first high-brow little bit political activists. 
uh, those people were, so they had more modest social background, so sometimes they had high education, sometimes no, so some of them had stable jobs, but many of them didn't have stable jobs, they were, some of them were practically unemployed. And the specificity of their social trajectory before the war was that they traveled to another virus. They just love virus. And they believe that uh, war and to be a participant of the war is a source. So they believe that war is their vacation. And when they were talking about themselves, they said something, yeah, you know, I just be, just, I'm just a barrier. I just belong to those people who live in war, yes. So I was here, I was there. And usually their life in between those wars that was not very uh, exciting because they really enjoyed the fight because for them the real <laughs> friendships was there um, the real like experience when you live on the edge it was also there so normal life was a little bit boring for them <laughs> and they were uh, they were sort of so their mindset was a sort of like a conspiracy theory thing and they were uh, Besides the fact that it just love wars, they were also expecting that something happened. And usually their stories of mobilization was like, yeah, in year 2000, I read a report written by US, by the way, specialists, and they said that in 10 years, 20 years, Russia will, uh, there will be a war in Russia, and Russia will be will fall down and there will be seven independent states instead of Russia. And when I saw what's going on in Odessa, this part in the um, House of Unions, I was like, well, really, what's going on? And then I realized that this scenario is coming true and I should travel there and uh, defend Russian war. So uh, that was there, that was how they saw those events. So, and uh, what we have in common between those two categories of people who traveled from Russia is first that they were uh, they had a sort of predisposition to join the fight because first was activist and they experienced this huge disappointment in their normal life and some of them had a violent experience during their uh, during their political uh, activist career. And the second, they just participated in previous wars, and they just loved that. So they were predisposed. So they had some sort of predispositions to join this fight. Uh, and this fight, the Donbas war, for both uh, people from those groups, it was a sort of an opportunity, an opportunity to just get uh, to what they want. But they also experienced there's the same feelings of fear and resentment. So first people, first category, they were just, uh, they were saying that we're defending Russian people because they will be killed and that's fascism. And the second nationalist warriors, they actually defended Russia and Russian world from American aggression from the Western world. So they had those feelings in common with the people who joined the fight from Donbass. And this is the first category of people, so people who travel to Donbass from other regions of Ukraine. And they sort of have uh, characteristics from both of like previous groups. So they come from a very diverse social background. Some of them were educated and they had successful career, they had their own businesses, whatever. Some of them were like not that good. 
so their situation was not that good before the war. Uh, but usually, because of their views, so they all had pro-Russian views, they, wore, they all were opposed to Maidan, and some of them also have that dreams about war that just, yes, I wanted to build, to build a career in army, but I was not able to do that for different reasons. Anyway, they were pro-Russian, some of them were dreaming about the fight, but never took part in the fight. And they were pretty active during um, this pre-war uh, stage of the conflict. So they could participate in, in rallies in their country, in their cities. Um, they could be the organizers of those rallies. So, and at the moment when the fight started, they found themselves in situation when they were sort of pushed because uh, they didn't see themselves, uh, they was not able to see themselves anymore as a part of Ukrainian society. Right, which was a post-Maidan society at that moment, so they were not able to agree with that. And some of them were some of them were also already like followed by the police. <laughs> uh, some of them they were called for army service to just join the fight, but from pro-Ukrainian side, pro-Kiev side. So and basically they had this choice. They was not able to stay. Uh, in their hometowns. So they could either immigrate to Russia or they could go to Donbass, and they prefer to go to Donbass and join the fight there. Uh, so, yeah, as I said, those people, they just have something in common with two previous groups, but they also have those, like, say, push factors. So they were in a situation, then they have to make a choice about, like, what they will have to leave they were forced to leave their hometowns and they just had to make a choice. If they join armed groups, armed groups or if they just become immigrants somewhere else. Uh, so what we uh, see here, if we compare all those groups. So first we see that some people uh, are predisposed, so they have some predisposition to join violent events. And some people are more pushed, so those people who live in Ukraine or those people who live in the best territory, so they were definitely much more pushed by the circumstances around them to join the fight, so they just were in a different situation. But those people who were traveling from Russia somehow, I mean, that's not surprising, right? That's just, I guess, pretty obvious conclusion. So, but if you want, if you travel to a site of fight from some other country, uh, you should have something not just, you know, be outraged by what, what's going on there. You should have something else, right? Some, some, something which will make you actually to make this decision to reorganize your life and to go there. And for those people who traveled from Russia, for many of them, most of them, there was a sort of... So they traveled there for some time, sort of vocational fight. I don't know how to say that, <laughs> right? So many of them spent quite a lot of time in the bus, but anyway, they always had this feeling that I can come back to my normal life. I can come back home to Moscow, somebody's but I just continue that. What is interesting that what unites all those people, what is they have in common that from the point of view of emotions, they all have very similar emotions. There's just fear. They, some they, whomever it is, boundaries, 
uh, Maidan nationalist, Ukrainian nationalist, or U.S. of the West will come and destroy us, will come and kill us, will come and enslave us. That's the fear. And resentment. And this resentment would be about different things. So those Maidan people get rid of our president and they want to impose us some new order. You know, we won't, don't want to leave uh, this way. Oh, this is like the Western world occupied Ukraine and now they want to destroy our perfect Russian world. But anyway, that's sort of upset about um, the, this reversal of social order. And what is also interesting, I think that this is partly probably maybe the problem of the data we collected or maybe there's just problem of the sample. But I think that anyway it's really interesting that we don't see a lot of economic incentives, at least with like those people we So many of them just said, okay, I just invested my own money, I bought the ticket, I traveled. Like, okay, uh, I had a business, but I decided to join. So they didn't expect uh, any remuneration for that. But as I said, which was important, especially for those people, for local people who joined, is that they didn't expect that this war will last for such a long time. They expected a sort of Crimean scenario. So they just, oh yeah, we just will do something for one month or two months, and then everything will be over. So that was not true. But that's not a, a whole story, right? Because if people think about that, okay, uh, there is a war in Ukraine. Well, okay, there is Ukrainian army who is trying to kill some people who live in Donbass. Okay, so I live in Moscow. Why do I care? Why do I just travel to this Donbass and will risk my life and will try to save some Russian world? So why would I do that, right? And the same is with fear, and that was very deep. I remember all those debates like in 2014. Why those people who lived in Donbass start occupying the building, uh, why they start patrolling the streets, why they start, why they try to find weapons to defend themselves, because the other side said like, well, but there was no, there was no, like there was no threat. I mean, if they would not start doing all that stuff, probably there will be no war. So why everybody was so afraid, right? <laughs> and this resentment, where does it come from? Because like often, if we look at studies of wars, we will see that, um, so here, both people who traveled from Russia and who lived in the past, they experienced their resentment in sort of a little bit in advance, right? So yeah. Yanukovych uh, left Ukraine, but but the world is still more or less the same, right? It's just a few months after the, after all that stuff. So you don't. I mean, everything is just a mess. You don't know. Maybe everything will be okay. You can think about it like this, or in case of those Russian warriors who traveled from Russia, like okay, why 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 Russian world is under attack? Why is that? <laughs> why? Uh, so why did they try? Why are they were motivated by all that? So and uh, I'm moving to this uh, part where we'll try to explain how those people made sense of art because actually their stories, uh, which they had in their heads, and the way they explained all those events to themselves and to other people, they amplify a lot, both fear and resentment. So um, 
analyze the interviews, the narratives of all those people, and uh, there are three sort of ideal types of stories about what is going on. And those narratives, they belong, uh, they belong more or less to those to three separate groups. So the first one to those well-loved and bus citizens, and this is the narrative of the unfinished bar. The second narrative is about uh, the streams of Novorossiya. This narrative belongs to Russian activists who traveled to Donbass. And the third narrative, the Russian world needs you, belong to those nationalist barriers who also traveled uh, to Russia. And I will just uh, shortly describe all those narratives. So what is interesting about all those stories? So they are, so they are stories. Right? They have a plot, they have enemies and good guys and bad guys, they had a conflict, they had the explanation of the conflict. Those stories are very dramatic. And they, those stories, there is an apocalyptic mode of narration, right? So those are the stories about the end of the world. If you will not stop something, something what's going on, the evil, the world, will, you, your world will end. But all those stories, told by representatives of different groups of combatants, they all organized about a similar vocabulary. So they all use similar, the same categories. And this is basically Russian world, uh, Western world, Novorossiya, and Great Patriotic War. So those are like three main, um, like th three um, categories which are at their, like, which constitute the core of those narratives. So the first narrative uh, is, it is belong to those well-off uh, Donbass citizens. And they see this war, Donbass war, as a repetition of the second war, uh, the Great Patriotic War. So Great Patriotic War is the other name for the Second World War, but more like loaded with positive and heroic meaning. And their story is that, okay, so uh, I'm, uh, my father defended Soviet Union and defended Russia from fascists, and I cannot, so being his son or the grandson of my grandparents, I have to join the fight. Because actually what is going on there, here, is that those fascists, those banderists, they were not destroyed during the Second World War. We see now that their children, they come back to us, and they finally want to finish what uh, Bandera and what Hitler uh, was not succeed to do, so they just want to kill all Russians. That's what's going on here. So in this story, US is not the US and the West, like Europe, is not the main actor. So this is just orchestrators, smart people who <laughs> who help those bad Ukrainian fascists in their like, fight against Russian, against Russian uh, people. And in this narrative, um, Novorossiya and Russian world, those like, very important categories also used by Putin and some Russian state officials to talk about this conflict. So for them, Novorossiya is a sort of, um, a sort of representation of this old, Soviet idea of the friendship of nations when all people live together friendly. And they use Novorossiya to um, 
uh, to uh, articulate the vision of the future of the so how this conflict can be resolved. So for them, Novorossi is Ukraine in its new capacity, some way to overcome the contradiction, some way to a way out from the conflict. Right. The second narrative belongs to those uh, nationalist warriors who came from Russia. And for them, this story, the story is like completely different. For them, the main uh, participants of this conflict, so there is a, the West on the one side, and there is the Russian world and those warriors on the other side, and they protect Russian world. And the thing is, what's going on in Donbass war is actually that's not the war uh, within Ukraine, that's not a civil war, not at all. So Ukraine is a sort of second, it's not a real state, bunch of like those Ukrainian Nazis and Ukrainian nationalists, they're not even real nationalists because they're all sponsored by the West. But what's going on during this war is this is, this is one more attempt of this the West to destroy Russia. And the West wanted to destroy Russia for centuries. So I don't know, starting from uh, ancient Romans, there was no Russian state back then, but still, the West wanted to destroy Russia. So, and now what we observing here, yeah, so now what they were observing in this Donbass conflict, that this is a sort of final attack of the West. If they will not protect those, this Russian world in Donbass, the West will come to Russia and destroy Russia. And for them, like the, this idea of Russian war is really interesting because uh, so for people who live in the past, there was about this Soviet friendship of nations. But for them, Russian world is basically everywhere where Russian spirit is. And I think that this is very, this is very much, um, this is this match uh, their predispositions to like join the fight because I mean. This idea of Russian world just let, let them to go anywhere because they can say, well, the Russian world is there on Cuba. They're killing, they're, they're destroying Russian world and Russian spirit. They're killing Russian people and just can travel there, right? And for them, the Barossia means probably almost nothing. So it's not uh, they don't fight for the Barossia because for them, the Barossia is just a small part of whatever Russian Ukraine. But they are fighting. They just want. They're dreaming about this great. Russian world empire and so Soviet Union was good for them, but actually Russian uh, Great Russian Empire was even better because it was bigger. So Novorossi is not a thing. And the third narrative is uh, the one produced by those Russian activists, and this is again this is a different story. So what uh, the main thing for them is actually Novorossia. So they want to build Novorossia. And they're thinking about, but for them, Novorossi is not a territory. For them, it's a sort of a dream country. They were not able which uh, embody all their desires and dreams. And you can see this, like, the last quotation, it's like, it's a sort of, a, I don't know, fairy tale, right? The, the air is free, the culture, no oligarchs, free bread, free air, culture blossoming like a wild tree. So this is the way they saw Novorossi. And actually, they were fighting for Novorossi. For them, their motivation was like, we want to build something perfect, not in Russia, because Putin is there and don't let us do that. Well, we can go to Donbass, right? And to do it there. And for um, them, 
So for those Donbass citizens, the war was something which, Great Patriotic War, Second World War, was something which repeats itself during the current conflict, right? They were literally saying, what is going on now is just a continuation of the Second World War. And for those people, uh, the Second World War cannot be repeated because these glorious times, they just end, they're in the past. And the whole tragedy of their life is that they were not able to take part in all that, right? So they were just hearing the stories of these great events from their grandparents and from all those old people around them, but nothing, actually nothing interesting was going on around them during their life. And then, the mass conflict. Here it is. Um, yes. So we can see here that there are different narratives and within those narratives um, the fear and resentment it just amplify themselves right because you don't just fight with some Ukrainian citizens but you fight with the people who are actually the children of Soviet fascists right who was trying to kill your grandparents and this time they came for you you're not fighting with so in the second case you see the fight not just within Ukraine, between Ukrainian citizens or whatever, but you see this global fight between the Russian world and the West, and the stakes are really high because if Donbass will lose, the Russian world will be destroyed, and of course those people, they didn't want that. So those narratives, they amplify everything. They amplify those motivations and made this war really worth fighting. And I want to, so I guess my time is almost over and just want to make a final remark, thing which uh, I'm still thinking about, that, but as a sort of interest, it seems interesting for me. So in all those narratives and in interviews of pro anti key fighters, we see um, a very specific um, ethnic identity, right? They all, almost all, they consider themselves as Russians. And this identity is, I would say, it's cruelly inclusive. So they basically say, well, it doesn't matter if you're Ukrainian or Russian. But what they mean is like that there are some bigger community which is rooted in the Soviet or imperial past. And actually, everybody are Russians or Slavs. It doesn't matter how you call that. But all those other nationalities, like Belarusians or Ukrainians, that's the second. That's the second stuff. So we all Russian people. And <laughs> this uh, thing um, really, uh, this somehow that's very important thing which all those people have in common and this thing make a huge impact in how they see the conflict because for them what those pro uh, Maidan Ukrainians want is completely wrong because their place is with Russia historically naturally right and if we will compare this like this identity, a very inclusive, cruelly inclusive identity with uh, the new post-Maidan Ukraine identity, we will see that actually they have some similarities, but they're also different, right? Because Ukraine uh, identity, it's, it's, I would say, cruelly exclusive. So that's what my colleagues show in their recent articles. They show that um, this event of Euromaidan has produced a new type of civil identity which uh, equate uh, the fact of being Ukrainian with 
loving Ukraine and with being a person. So in this quotation, you just can see that, right? So if you support Maidan, you're just a person, you're, you're real. But if you don't support Maidan, you're a very bad guy. Probably you can be killed. And this identity can also include everybody, like Armenian people, whatever. So, and I don't know. So for me, it's just, I don't know what, what we can, <laughs> what kind of conclusion we can do <laughs> from that, but for me it's somehow just catchy to see uh, those two very like inclusive, in ex both inclusive and exclusive identities like fighting with, in conflict with each other, right, within like one country. Okay, so uh, I come to the conclusion and I try to explain who joined the fight and why they did that and how they did that. And for me, the thing which I'm still thinking about, so I remember that at the beginning of the conflict, uh, I read a paper and this paper stated uh, something like, you know, we can explain everything with Soviet Union. So we can say that one people, they're more anti-Soviet, those people who supported Maidan, and those people who were opposed to it, they are more Soviet. But actually, that's not true. And at that moment, I was like, oh yeah, of course, we cannot explain everything with the Soviet Union. Of course, that's not, that's not because this fight is not because some people are pro-Soviet or some people are anti-Soviet. And I'm still sort of agree with that, but what we see as, and what, what I see, basing on those data, on those interviews, is actually that Soviet legacy and Soviet identity and Soviet history is the main, the main source uh, for understanding of that conflict for the people who joined it, right? So when they think about themselves, they think about themselves as a part of like huge Soviet empire, right? And this is how they feel uh, that they are right to fight against pro-key forces because for them they just want to destroy something big and something good. They feel resentment about the dissolution of Soviet Union. They suspect that the United States took part in it, right, and that makes them angry. Uh, Great patriotic war become the very important event and some, some fighters, those local citizens, local Dimba citizens, they just saw the local fight through the prism of this great patriotic war um, heritage, from the prism of the great patriotic war memory, right? So somehow, this the Soviet Union experience and the Soviet Union, the past, and the memory is very important for this war. And that's why I want to finish with this uh, picture which you already saw uh, on the flyer, that Donbass is the heart of Russia. So I think that this is what makes Donbass war is probably so special because somehow Donbass is perceived as something like inherently Russian by the people who joined this war. And this is uh, why many of them joined. So thank you very much.